From a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation? Intriguing stories and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. This show is sponsored by Terramia Restaurante in the North End, when you will only accept the absolute best in Italian food, great service, and an intimate setting. Terramia is your go-to spot. I know, because it also happens to be my favorite, right along with the Antico Forno, where I was there actually last Sunday. And I will tell you, the food is absolutely fabulous. Okay, and there's also, by the way, parking. And don't forget to tell them that I sent you. All right, then. Sometimes it can be hard to let go. But nowhere do we see that more clearly than when it comes to a person's right to die with dignity at the end of their life. Sometimes, though, the difficulty in letting go isn't expressed by the person with the terminal disease. Instead, it's expressed by their doctor. Doctors often fall back on medical ethics to defend their stance against assisted suicide. And that's likely because many doctors believe that their primary responsibility is to heal and also to do no harm. So wouldn't helping someone along to a quickened death be contradictory to their oath? So who lives, who dies, and most important, who decides? With no cure and no treatment available, should people be able to decide on voluntary assisted death? These are very important and deeply personal and thought-provoking questions, and it will, they will be the topic of our show tonight. And we have with us Dr. Peg Sandine. She is the Executive Director of Death with Dignity National Center. Thank you for joining us tonight, Peg. Thank you, Francesca. I'm so happy to be here. So can you start with a little bit of your history with the Death uh, death with Dignity movement? Um, you bet. You know, I'm a social worker um, by training and by profession. And um, early in my career, I was working in the HIV movement. And so, so very much, um, if you think about HIV, um, you know, a long time ago in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, it really was a death sentence at that time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, my entire work as a, as a practicing social worker was around dying. And I, I really um, came to understand death differently um, in that process. My mother is also a hospice nurse, so um, I have this, you know, like family background Mm -hmm. of um, experience with dying from a very young age. And so it it sort of um, came together that my entire career um, uh, revolved around dying in a a way that I didn't ever anticipate, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, after I uh, moved to Portland um, to get my PhD in social work, um, I started working with the Death with Dignity National Center. So I've actually been here for about 16 years and have seen a, a very long sort of change in the movement and um, of, of what's going on in terms of assisted dying around the country. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really very important work. You know, I was, uh, just prior to the interview, I was doing a little homework and started to watch a documentary, and I will tell you, it was really painful to watch. I, I, I couldn't. It was like, oh, this is horrible. It was a woman with MS, and she could she could barely get out of bed and make her own meals, and, and she had written a letter that she wanted 
um, to be able to end her life. And it just seems so, it, just heart-wrenching, really, really heart-wrenching. So I'd really admire the work that you do. Um, you know, I'll never forget the day I was walking my dog along the beach and one of my neighbors I bumped into on the on the beach and um, her husband was very sick with lung cancer at the time and she was a very vocal woman and I loved her dearly and she said you know when it's your time your dog's time to go you're going to do the humane thing you're going to you know out of love you're going to be able to put your dog down why can't we euthanize people it's like oh but you know I, when the time did come for and I, and I saw that my beloved pet was suffering as agonizing as it was i i do have to say that i you know, I was grateful that I was able to do that because I did not want my little boy to suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly parallels to death with dignity. If you think about, um, you know, the, the the video that you're watching or the movie that you're watching and the, and the idea that this person is, is dying, um, you know, what death with dignity does is that, when we're dying, everything gets stripped away from us. All of our choices, all of our options, you know, our family gets stripped away. And sometimes, you know, we can't go outside. We can't do our jobs. We can't do the things that we want. And, you know, we really are facing this inevitable death. But what death with dignity does is it gives you back something. It gives you back the option. Mm-hmm. It gives you back a choice about how you're going to die. And that's, that's what's so important about it. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I think about the video you watch and how difficult it is. The thing about Death with Dignity is, it's, I think, in a sense, it's very life-affirming, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it, it returns to you something that the dying process has stripped away. Mm-hmm. What, what was painful was that this woman was in so much pain, and she just desperately wanted to go, and yet she didn't have that option, so that's what I found just really, really heart-wrenching. Um, so how does the, the law work, and, and what are the safeguards to ensure the patient is actually or is acting voluntarily and able to make their own health care decisions? So the law works, um, the way that it's written is that, and, and when I say it, there are actually 10 states with, with death with dignity laws, mm-hmm. um, and they're all almost the same in the United States. So I sort of talk about it, but it, it's, you know, 10 self-standing laws, but they all work, um, they're all modeled after the Oregon law, and they all work pretty much the same. And what they do is, um, if you actually sort of open the statute, right, and, and read the law, which we don't really do very often, but um, what the law does is it sets out a series of steps that a patient has to follow to request assisted dying. And also it sets out a a series of steps that a physician has to follow to to, um, fulfill the request. So um, we we would call that in medicine a standard of care, right? It it, Mm. it sort of establishes what's supposed to happen. And, um, you know, the, the safeguards, when we talk about the safeguards, the safeguards are all the steps that are woven in to protect the patient um, 
uh, from coercion or for, from someone else forcing them to um, use the law. And and so what has to happen is that a patient requests to a, their physician, and, and they have to make multiple requests, and they have to do it in writing, and they have to do it in person. So that's a safeguard. When I talk about safeguards, you know those steps. And... Um, then a patient has to have two physicians confirm that they're terminally ill and that their prognosis is six months or less to live. And then they have to um, be, the, both physicians have to determine that the patient is able to make healthcare decisions. So they're mentally competent because we don't want people who are so depressed that they can't, you know, make decisions. We don't want them using the law. That would be a safeguard. Mm -hmm. So people have to be mentally competent. And, and again, the two physicians make that determination. And then the the patient and the core of the Death with Dignity Act is that the patient has to be able to ingest the medication themselves. So if, if someone can't physically take the medication, they actually don't qualify for the law. And so that's, um, you know, if you think about language and the, the language like you talk, talked about euthanasia, actually euthanasia is banned in the United States and banned in these laws because that would mean that someone else was doing it, that the physician was actually, um, you know, injecting the, the patient with the medication. And that's not what happens at all. This is, this is all about a patient's control at the end of life, and so they have to be able to take the medication themselves. And so that's another safeguard that's built into the law. So there's, there's like, waiting periods as a safeguard, and you have to get a second opinion as a safeguard, and you have to be able to take the medication yourself. So these laws are really well constructed to protect patients, but at the same time allow people to have access um, to death with dignity when they need it. Right. But now, you know, when you say that, you know, at least, or I guess two doctors have to agree um, that the person has six months or less to live, well, a very dear friend of mine, many, many years ago, she was given six months to live. She ended up living for another nine years. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, I mean, I so that, that's a little fuzzy there when, you know, and, and not only, and the other thing is sometimes doctors aren't always right. Many times, you know, many times, they're, yeah. many times, unfortunately, yeah. they're not right. But, you know, I, I, I suspect that that's, you know, in the situation that, you know, it's pretty clear, um, you know, that the person yeah. has, but you just don't, you really, really don't know. This friend had lupus and she, you know, and, and it was really a, a funny not, well, not funny, um, but it was a really unusual situation. And, you know, she ended up meeting this really wonderful man, and he really just changed her life. And she just became so alive. And he is still, a, you know, a dear friend of mine. And, you know, sometimes I, I wonder, did, you know, did, did he keep her alive just because her entire you know, of course, that gets into, you know, you know, your body and your mind are connected, you know, and, and, right. right? So, um, you know, I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but just, you know, a little, you know, just kind of like to look at both sides. 
Right. Well, I have, you know, I have a um, an academic response and a social work response. To okay. That question. Okay. The first is that uh, okay? You know what? Then let let's do this. Well, it's just Kevin just said we've got to take a break. So let's take a break before you answer because I have a feeling it's going to go on more than a minute, and we just have a yeah. minute before the break. So let's do that, listeners. Stay with us here. We are talking about the fight for the right to die, logistical and ethical challenges. Don't go anywhere. This is life. Don't miss it. This is Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. We'll talk more in just a bit on 95.9 WATD. Plan a wonderful evening in Boston's North End, highlighted by one of the neighborhood's best-kept secrets, Antico Forno. Renowned as one of the world's most authentic Italian restaurants, Antico Forno provides you with an unforgettable dining experience featuring world-class traditional Italian dishes cooked in their beautiful brick oven. Outdoor dining is now available, too. Whether seated inside or enjoying an evening under the stars, when you eat at Antico Forno, you feel like part of the family. Antico Forno is open seven days a week. See their menu and make your reservation online at AnticoFornoBoston.com. Ladies, are you tired of looking tired, noticing fine lines and stubborn wrinkles that won't go away? The professional team at Jolie Medical Spa in Marshfield offers Botox, fillers, all therapy, skin lifting and tightening, hydrofacials, IV hydration, and more. The warm and caring manner at Jolie Medical Spa will make you feel like you're coming in for a cup of coffee, but instead, you'll leave with a relaxed look on your face. Located conveniently at 435 Furnace Street in Marshfield, call them today at 781-248-5769 or visit them at www.joliemedspa.com to schedule your free consultation and know you are in the best of hands. Just wait for your friends to ask where you went on vacation. Because you know they will. They say you are what you eat. In fact, the path to much of your health begins at your mouth. Dr. Nathaniel Chan from Advanced Dental Arts in Quincy and Norwell would like to take the time to show you how the well-being of your head, neck, and mouth affect your overall health. The family dentistry practiced at Advanced Dental Arts helps every member of your household have healthy teeth and prevent periodontal gum disease. Dr. Chan, in particular, focuses on cosmetics, sleep apnea, TMJ, and migraine pain. Even if you're not a patient, you can meet with Dr. Chan to discuss whitening, veneers, Invisalign clear braces, or implants. Reach out to Dr. Nathaniel Chan today to set up a free consultation at his office at either 353 Washington Street in Norwell or at 1250 Hancock Street in Quincy. Visit drnathanielchan.com. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy trattoria with stucco walls and beam ceiling specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisine here, the atmosphere is elegant, yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing. And best of all, it's reasonably priced. The best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112. That's 617-523-3112. Or visit terramiaristorante.com. This is 
You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. The talk continues on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back, and I'm speaking with Dr. Peg Sandine. She's the Executive Director of Death with Dignity National Center, and we're talking about the fight for the right to die. Welcome back, Peg. Thank you. So before the break, I had mentioned a, a dear friend who had was given six months to live. She had a lupus. She was very, very sick. And uh, and then she, how I met her is we were in an art class together, and she met this other gentleman in the art class as well, and they just fell madly in love. And all I know is she lived not for nine years. And I, I often wondered, was it he that kept her alive? Because they had just the most beautiful, beautiful relationship. And I, I was just, I was actually just thinking about that just this morning, like, wow, I wonder, you know, because I'm preparing for the show, I'm thinking, I wonder if, if he had an impact on her living longer. And I, I can't help but believe that to some degree, I mean, the, you know, it's been said that, you know, the healthier the connections that you have, the connections in general, the longer we live. And so I I would uh, wonder if you feel that that could have any impact on her living longer. Oh, I think certainly. Um, and, you know, I think when we talk about death with dignity, we're talking about dying, and dying is a process, right? Mm, it's, right. We think of it in our culture as an event, um, but it's actually a process. And, you know, like, looking at this situation from the academic point of view, um, what the research tells us is that overwhelmingly doctors are going to err on the, the side of telling us that we have longer to live than we really do. Mm-hmm. So it's actually the opposite situation um, is the common one, where a doctor will say, yes, you have six months to live, but in actuality, you only have a month. Or, yes, you know, the the trajectory of your dying is, is that this prognosis is about a year when you actually have, you know, three or four days left. So overwhelmingly, oh, really? the research tells us that doctors overestimate. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And we might just say that probably the most common is about hope. You know, mm. physicians don't want to be um, going around dashing your hope. And it, and it goes back to your point that, you know, what makes us live, we don't really know. Um, was it that this person, you know, um, fell in love with someone? Um, we, we don't know that, but there's, but that would be about hope, right? Mm-hmm, you know, like absolutely. they don't want to give up. Mm-hmm. But overwhelmingly, the research tells us, unfortunately, that doctors are wrong in the other direction, that if you have a terminal diagnosis, and a prognosis from a physician, you're much more likely to die sooner rather than outlive that prognosis. Um, and that's just what, you know, unfortunately what the research shows us. And the number about that is hospice. If you think about hospice, you're eligible for hospice um, if you have a terminal prognosis of six months, just like death with dignity, hospice is six months. But the average stay in hospice is three days in the United States. So that tells you mm-hmm. that doctors are giving that diagnosis later, right? So, um, yeah. So anyway, that that's what the the, re- the research. And then, if I might put on my social work hat, yes. <laughs> you know, the thing about um, death with dignity is, so say she would qualify because she got that prognosis and she went through the process and, and got the medication or got the prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, is people don't tend to ingest the medication 
until their symptoms become so great, right? Um, it, so they might qualify, but they don't really take the medication to, to hasten their death unless their symptoms get so bad. Right. And so about a third of people, and it's, this is all, in all the states with death with dignity, the statistic is about the same. About a third of people who qualify for the law don't end up um, using it to hasten their death, right? And we think that, in, and the research tells us that, um, you know, one of the reasons why is because their symptoms aren't so bad, and so they they can go on living. So death with dignity gave them a choice, right. but they chose not to use it. And so that's the good story, yeah, right? Like you exactly. want a story, it's the good story. She outlived her diagnosis. Right, right. We want that to happen. Yes, definitely. Let's chat a little bit about doctors because, you know, I I, I feel that you know if a doctor's primary job is to relieve suffering, then and if they don't want to do this, then aren't they failing to fulfill the responsibility? It, you know, it seems to me, in keeping with the physician's ethics to keep an individual and maintain their dignity and choose the date of their own death, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I have deep thoughts on that. I, I mean, thought you, you know, might. The, the I thought you might, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's, I, I mean, I, I, to some degree, I could, that must be a very difficult position for a doctor to be in but 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 I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. You know, you started with the premise that a, a physician's primary um responsibility is to relieve suffering. Exactly. And I don't know if the United States healthcare system imagines physicians in the same way. I think that a physician um, in the United States, generally, their primary responsibility is to become, be a treater, to treat illness. And, um, and that's a philosophical difference, right? You posited one thing, but I feel like our United States system is based in capitalism, is based in an insurance model. And this is way off of our topic, but, that's okay. but it's very much related. And so what happens is physicians are trained to treat they're trained to save your life and to, to treat you and to use pharmaceuticals and to use modern medicine and to use all the technologies to treat you. And, and physicians go to medical school to learn that, to be um, how to treat. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're trying to reimagine our healthcare system so that it's different. We're trying to reimagine our healthcare system so it's about things like quality of life. It's, it's about things like... Um, suffering and, and, and stopping suffering and, and making sure that the patients have what they want. But I don't think that that's what we have right now. We have a system that's set up that health insurance pays for a treatment, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that's just what it is. And so I think that physicians uh, build their identity around being treaters or how to treat an individual. And so it's really hard for many physicians to understand when a patient says, no, I don't want treatment. Right, right. It, it really, I, and I, you know, I, I get frustrated with physicians. I get mad at physicians. But when I think about that challenge to their identity, like um, I have learned a profession that's all about treating people, and now I'm not supposed to do that. What am I supposed to do? Educate. And so I think that yeah, educate, um, listen to the patient. <laughs> Oh, you know, what what is that? Uh, you know, what is know. actually? Know. You know, I, I I don't know. I mean, I've I've I feel like I've been very fortunate with the doctors that I've 
had in my lifetime. But not everyone has that, you know, the same experience. But um, so so let's just talk a little bit um, th- about the loss of independence and the indignity that I think that so many people who are dying are afraid of. You know, there's sort of sense of losing their their. I, I don't know. I'm a, kind of almost a loss for words, but you know, almost like they become a child. You know, it's almost right. it's almost like uh, you know. I remember my dad saying it's like you know, it's like he started his children in diapers, and you know, and, and then on his way out, he's feeling like a now, you know, he's in diapers, right? And and this is a ter- it's a it's just a. I think that there's no dignity there, and I appreciate that. You know, I I very very much do. Um, so I'd like to know, you know, I mean, to me, that loss of independence and that indignity is a, is certainly a form of pain, even if it's not traditionally seen in that light. So, you know, help me with this. So what do you, what do you think? Right. So, um, if, if we think about how we die, mm-hmm. a couple of things happen because you're talking about physical symptoms and then. Um, you know, the psychological or the intrapsychic systems that we, you know, symptoms that we have. One is, it is true that um, for many of us who are dying from a terminal illness, um, we lose physical abilities, right? We lose the ability to work, we lose the ability to walk eventually. Um, Body functions are a big issue, and people fear about that. Um, And and then the second piece is then, again, this concept of our fear, our thoughts about that. Like, So we're we're going through this process of losing physical capabilities that we may have had all of our lives and also coming to terms with that, um, you know, emotionally. um, And and that's very hard, and that's kind of a parallel track you talked earlier about body body-mind connection. Like, those things are happening at the same time. And so, for a lot of people, you know, the fear of pain at the end of life is greater than their actual pain, right? And yep. that's, that's kind of um, a, a factor that we think about in terms of death with dignity, too. But really, if we look at the people who are using the death with dignity law, who end up ingesting the medication, and it's a very small number of people, it tends to be people who those physical symptoms are really bad. Mm-hmm. That it's not just the fear of pain or it's not just the fear of losing the ability to walk or body functions, things like that. It's folks who really have lost those things right. um, who tend to use death with dignity. So before we take the next break, I, I, I just something to marinate on. Who opposes the death with di- dignity You know, and what what are the arguments that they use. So listeners, stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. Much more to talk about. This is This is Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. We'll talk more in just a bit on 95.9 WATD. You need help around the house. You need a handyman. How do you find just the one you're looking for? Go to locally owned and operated HandymanConnection.com. Handyman Connection puts you in touch with one of their carefully screened and background checked craftsmen. You get the best help around for maintenance, installation and remodeling services, carpentry, tiling and flooring, and assistance with aging in place upgrades to your home. 
Handyman Connection also provides you with free in-home estimates and a one-year written warranty on labor from one of their experienced professionals. Call 781-829-3030 or visit handymanconnection.com. Your connection to quality craftsmen on the South Shore. One call, one connection. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room in the pub can't be beat. Tides specializes in casual dining with food that's delicious, not pretentious. On a warm day, enjoy a frosty pint at their bar or their sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach. Or enjoy an incredible meal in their dining room anytime. Tides guarantees you great atmosphere with superior service. The menu at Tides is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out the drink menu at Tides for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is unbeatable anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahant.com. Plan a wonderful evening in Boston's North End, highlighted by one of the neighborhood's best-kept secrets, Antico Forno. Renowned as one of the world's most authentic Italian restaurants, Antico Forno provides you with an unforgettable dining experience featuring world-class traditional Italian dishes cooked in their beautiful brick oven. Outdoor dining is now available, too. Whether seated inside or enjoying an evening under the stars, when you eat at Antico Forno, you feel like part of the family. Antico Forno is open seven days a week. See their menu and make your reservation online at AnticoFornoBoston.com. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. The talk continues on 95.9 WATD. We are back, and I'm speaking with Peg Sandine. Welcome back, Peg. Thank you. Who opposes death with dignity, and what are the arguments that they use? So the number one opponent to death with dignity would be um, organized religion, the church, Mm. um, and in particular the Catholic Church. Yes. And um, the reason why I say that and and draw that conclusion is that – To enact death with dignity laws, you have to go through a political process. Um, And so because of this political process, um, it is the church who pays for the opponents. They're the ones who invest dollars to um, lobby against, to work against, or if there's a ballot initiative, to run ads against um, death with dignity becoming enacted. And so that's why, because it's a political environment, I always look to the opponents who bring money to the table. So the church is willing to um, expend financial resources to oppose death with dignity. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the reason why is, is probably clear. It's church teachings. You know, it's a particular teaching of the Catholic Church, which actually comes directly from the Pope. And, um, that death with dignity is not okay. My challenge to that, of course, is I think that's fine for one church, but what happens if you're you're not part of 
church or if you disagree with your church. I, you know, I, the, the challenge of the church making the decision for all of us is, mm-hmm. is you know, what I, I disagree with. But, you know, I would say that the main opponent is the church, the Catholic Church in particular, who's willing to expend um, its resources. What's interesting is if you do a poll of everyday Catholics, they support death with dignity at the same rate as the entire population. Oh, that so really is the institution it, it, of the church, right? And national polling and individual state polling consistently show support around seventy percent and growing. And why do you think that is? You know, it's it's so interesting. And I I talk across the nation. I do you know presentations and used to travel. I'm sure I will return to traveling across the nation and just across the board. People believe in death with dignity, and mostly when we really drill down and talk to them about why, it's mostly because they want the choice for themselves. Mm -hmm. They believe that it's an individual right, that they should have the ability to make that choice at the end of life. You know, for some of them, they've experienced um, a dying process of a loved one that um, was very bad, and that has driven them to support. But for the most part, um, just a resounding majority, and again, you mentioned 70% and growing, then it's really about people wanting the choice for themselves when they get to the end of their lives. And what's going on with Massachusetts? There's an active effort going to pass the law, is that right? Yeah, there's a a law in the Massachusetts legislature right now that uh, is proposed, and I am anticipating that we'll have a hearing about uh, that piece of legislation in the fall. Um, And there has been continuous efforts in Massachusetts since about 2012 uh, to get Death with Dignity enacted. And I I really do think that Massachusetts is going to be one of the next states um, to adopt the law. Uh, as we kind of look at what the national kind of picture of death with dignity is. There seems like there's a, I mean, I I talked about this years ago on the radio when I was at another station, and I I don't remember there being that many. I remember Oregon being one. Um, I can't remember any others. I was kind of surprised that there were so many. Yeah, there's nine states plus the District of Columbia that have adopted death with dignity so far, and California being the big one, um, of course, and um, New Mexico, which is the most recent, um, just enacted their law this year. But there's 10 states um, with death with dignity now. What problems can occur with this law, with people dying? I mean, what kind of, there's got to be, you know, it's not a, it's not a slam dunk for sure. Um, you know, what about the, the cocktail that the doctor makes for the, the patient? And is, is the doctor there? And what what is it? You know, is it, I, I think I was reading somewhere that it could take 20 minutes to a couple of hours. I don't know. Just for myself personally, if I were in those shoes and I made that decision, I, that would be it. I wouldn't want to be hanging around for the next couple of hours thinking about, oh, I'm going to be going any minute now. Um, I just kind of want to be done with it. But, you know, that's just my own personal thoughts. And of course, who knows, I'm not in those shoes, but but what kind of issues come about? You know, one of the things that's sort of fascinating about the Death with Dignity Act is that um, when it was passed in Oregon in 94, and then it wasn't implemented until 97 for, you know, there were court challenges and things that stopped the implementation. But one of the things that's fascinating is that it is um, a first-of-its-kind legislation in the world. 
in the world, not just in the United States, um, in Oregon in 94, but in the world. And the original authors of the Oregon Death with Dignity Act got it right. They brought together, when they were thinking about you know, the law, they brought focus groups and physicians and pharmacists and lawyers and patients and um, hospice workers and all these different types of, of group of people to get it right. And the, and the reason why, if you think about it, is we only get one dying experience, nice. right? And, nice. and so there's not really room to make a mistake. And so I would say that the Oregon Death with Dignity Act and those um, like them around the country have worked nearly flawlessly flawlessly. And if you look at health policy, like it's really rare that we get it so right. And so I have to, you know, before I answer that question, I I want to put that context in that for the most part, and overwhelmingly, this goes well. But it is a medical practice, and Mm -hmm. every medical practice has complications. Um, And and that's just the reality of our world. There's not a a thing in medicine that doesn't happen without a complication. And the odd thing about death with dignity, when you think about it, is that the complication is that you live longer, right? (laughs) That you out... But it takes longer to die. That really is the only complication. And it happens in a very few number of individuals. Mm -hmm. And because we've been doing this for so long, we have a strong understanding. Physicians have a strong understanding of when this will happen. And it it tends to happen, just if we dig into the details of of why it happens, uh, because the medication is ingested. Um, through your gastrointestinal tract. If there's something wrong with your stomach and you can't metabolize the medication, then it might take longer, mm-hmm. right? So if you have stomach cancer or a mm-hmm. liver cancer, mm-hmm. it might take longer. And your physician knows this now. This is a known complication. And so if you are a person who has that particular condition that might mean that the medication works slower, you will know before you take it. Your family will know. Right, because it's a complication that your physician will let you know about. So yes, um, this is a complication, and it's it's a it's a strange one. You know, when we think about we take a medication, you know that, and um, what are the complications? This complication is that you know it it takes longer to die, mm-hmm. and so we have learned to deal with that. Physicians who are prescribers have learned to deal with that in, in um, among patients. So where it isn't, the law has not been passed. What what can the person do? I mean, is it kind of like a euthanasia underground, if you will? There's really not. Um, I, you know, I think that there's um, sometimes media sort of stories about that. There's really mm-hmm. not. The, 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 what people can do if they are experiencing very difficult symptoms that are not controlled by by, you know, modern, I say modern medicine, but they're not controlled by medicine. Their pain's uncontrolled. There's a very few number of people that, that this is happening with. And one of the, the um, top things that people um, are doing right now is they stop eating and drinking voluntarily. Mm, that's kind of, you yeah. stop, um, you can go for 30 days without without food. That's not the problem. It's the it's the hydration. So if you stop drinking, um, you know your death can come up um, about um, much more quickly than if you stop eating. But it's not an easy process, and it has to be um, under the the management of a physician. Yeah, but a physician, um, for, what, to stop what, 
Yeah, but what physician is going to help you to do that if it, the law is not passed in that state? Um, you know, stopping eating and drinking is legal in the United States. Um, there's no, you can't be forced to take in <laughs> hydration or food. And right. so this is, this is actually um, going on in every state um, in the nation that people with uncontrolled symptoms who are dying at the end of life uh, voluntarily stop eating and drinking with the help of their physician legally. What what a horrible way to have to go, you know. It just I think that it, years ago, as I mentioned, I had interviewed Heather Klish from Oregon, and my recollection is that she moved her family to Oregon so that her father could drink this cocktail and he could pass um, the way he wanted to pass, and that's right. that's the way I remember it. On a totally different note, has COVID had any impact on this movement? You know, it has. um, And sort of indirectly, one of the things that has happened with COVID, if you, and you know, there have been media stories about this, I'm sure you've talked to your friends about this, is people are thinking about how they want to die. Mm. People who are not impacted by COVID, but sitting at home last summer. so we're writing their wills, we're writing their advanced directives, we're Did thinking you? about intubation, you know, like, when have we seen intubation in the media like we've seen with uh, uh, COVID? And so people are starting to think about dying differently. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is almost a positive spin on COVID. I can't think of any positive spin on COVID, but mm-hmm. the idea that people are actually having conversations about how they want to die with their family members is so important. Um, and, I, and I think that's been the impact is, is very much, um, you know, people thinking about end of life, advanced care planning. What do I want? Mm-hmm. How do I, what do I want my advanced directive to say? All of those things are, are really important. All right. I'm curious about patients with dementia when um, planning physician-assisted death, you know, I mean, it's because that's a little bit different kind of a First of all, they're not necessarily... Oh, you want to take a break? Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. I'm in the middle of that thought, but you know where it's going. So so we will discuss dementia um, when we come back. This is life I'm Francesca Luca, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. They say you are what you eat. In fact... The path to much of your health begins at your mouth. Dr. Nathaniel Chan from Advanced Dental Arts in Quincy and Norwell would like to take the time to show you how the well-being of your head, neck, and mouth affect your overall health. The family dentistry practiced at Advanced Dental Arts helps every member of your household have healthy teeth and prevent periodontal gum disease. Dr. Chan in particular focuses on cosmetics, sleep apnea, TMJ, and migraine pain. Even if you're not a patient, You can meet with Dr. Chan to discuss whitening, veneers, Invisalign clear braces, or implants. Reach out to Dr. Nathaniel Chan today to set up a free consultation at his office at either 353 Washington Street in Norwell or at 1250 Hancock Street in Quincy. Visit drnathanielchan.com. You need help around the house. You need a handyman. How do you find just the one you're looking for? Go to locally owned and operated HandymanConnection.com. Handyman Connection puts you in touch with one of their carefully screened and background checked craftsmen. 
You get the best help around for maintenance, installation, and remodeling services, carpentry, tiling, and flooring, and assistance with aging in place upgrades to your home. Handyman Connection also provides you with free in-home estimates and a one-year written warranty on labor from one of their experienced professionals. Call 781-829-3030 or visit handymanconnection.com. Your connection to quality craftsmen on the South Shore. One call, one connection. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room in the pub can't be beat. Tide specializes in casual dining with food that's delicious, not pretentious. On a warm day, enjoy a frosty pint at their bar or their sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach. Or enjoy an incredible meal in their dining room anytime. Tides guarantees you great atmosphere with superior service. The menu at Tides is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out the drink menu at Tides for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is unbeatable anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahant.com. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy trattoria with stucco walls and beam ceiling specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisine here, the atmosphere is elegant, yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing. And best of all, it's reasonably priced. The best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112. That's 617-523-3112. Or visit terramiaristorante.com. Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca. On 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back, and we are discussing death with dignity with Peg Sandine. Uh, death with dignity means being able to take that final choice out of the hands of the doctors and putting it squarely in our own hands. Um, and we are talking about it being very comforting and knowing that you have the ability to be in control of your future and end and in your end-of-life decision. So welcome back, Peg. Thank you. So, Kevin, one more thing. Is this our last segment? Okay, just want to make sure. Okay, because I'm so fascinated with this conversation. I've kind of lost track of of the, the clock here. So, Peg, you know, for anyone who's been close to dementia, it's not like there's an on or off switch. So, you know, I mean, there are good days, there are bad days, which I'm not saying that's not the way with, with many um you know, diseases, but, you know, it's then, so how does that play out? And, and how does that person make that decision when they don't have their their own mind? You know, unfortunately, death with dignity is not an option for people um, who are experiencing dementia. Ugh. And if you think about, like, the safeguards that we talked about in the first mm. segment, mm. when um, you have to have... Um, 
two things have to happen at once. You have to have a prognosis of six months or less to live, but you also have to be mentally competent to make healthcare decisions. And so when you have a dementia, um, by the time you get to a six-month prognosis, you have lost the ability to make healthcare decisions for yourself. And so, unfortunately, death with dignity um, is not an answer. It's not a solution. Um, and I would say, I mean, you know, when you, if we, you know, we're doing a show about what are the top five issues in healthcare today, mm-hmm. I think dementia would be one of them. You right. know, how, how we deal with what is going to happen to us. We have an aging population. We're seeing more dementia than we've ever seen. How do we pay for health care and its life? How do we get what we want? All of these health policy questions are tremendously important. Right. Um, and but that, unfortunately, yeah. death with dignity is not the answer. And I don't know culturally if we have the answer. Mm-hmm. That's very sad because those people are so frustrated. Um, you know, I had a, a wonderful aunt that, that uh, well, she ended up having a stroke in the end, but oh, it was awful. She was just trapped inside her. You know, I mean, I could just she could get so frustrated, and it was just so it was so hard um, to watch. And and it, I also think of mental illness. So I would I would guess that mental illness sort of falls under that same. You know, death with dignity is not an option for those people, and yet those are two really like talk about being like talk about suffering, you know? I mean, obviously, there's so many people who have mental illness who unfortunately die by suicide. And for, and obviously, they're in so much agonizing pain. So it's, it's really, so um, help me with this. Where, you know, where, what's the solution here? Because mental illness is a, is a, a, a horrible, horrible disease. And certainly, you know, anybody who's been around it knows that it's, you know, that it's suffering. It's tremendous. You know, there are some suffer really some suffering souls out there. Right. I, I just cannot imagine advocating for death with dignity as a solution for mental illness. Um, and, you know, I think it's partially the social worker in me, mm. but I feel like right. our mental health system is so fragmented and so difficult to access and so um, inadequate that death is not the answer. I, you know, I think that um, I, I, I feel like there there has to be um, good treatment, um, access to care, and all of those folks for, for who have a mental illness, because I just don't think that state-sanctioned death is the answer for them. Well, but then obviously they feel that it is or they wouldn't, that they feel that there's enough suffering in their life and they can't stand the pain that they end their own lives. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately um, we do see that happening, but I would rather see us bolster our health care system so that they get the care that they need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in this last segment, is there anything that I should be asking you that I haven't asked you, anything that you want to share with our listening audience that you think that would be um, helpful? Um, I, I don't think so. What, what I do think is that I hope that folks, after they listen to our conversation today, they realize a couple of things. One is that it's really important to understand and have conversations about end of life with our loved ones and, and think about, uh, you know, these, these questions of how we want to live and die. 
And the other thing is, is something that you said that sort of sparked me thinking earlier when you said that this conversation is so interesting and, you know, you're just moving through it and not sure where we are in time. The thing about talking about dying is people tend to be afraid to do it. But once they start, it is a rich and long and good conversation. You know, people think that it's scary to talk about dying, but once you get going, it's not. It's a great conversation. And so I hope that that because you and I have this conversation, and it's that that somewhere tonight people will talk to their loved ones about how they want to die because it's a rich and important conversation for us to have. So how how is that so? I mean, I, to me, that would be a very, very painful conversation. I I don't know if that that to me would be. You're saying it's a very rich conversation. How so? It's um it's a rich conversation because I think that it gets us to what is most important to us as core human beings, mm-hmm. right? When we talk about dying, we're talking about the culmination of our lives, and we're really talking about who we are to our core as individuals and what we want and what we want our family to have and how we want our family to feel. And um, if we bottle those things up, because we have this death taboo in culture, right? Mm, We're not right. going to talk about dying. Right. When we bottle those things up, we bottle up the opportunity to really open up as to who we are as humans at our fullest potential. Right. Yeah. No. I. I. I yeah. When I think about it, and it, it is to me, it, it does feel uncomfortable and not a conversation that I would want to have. But I. I, I also know that. Um, that people who have been close to me that have passed on, that have had those conversations with others, I would agree for the most part. But there are people who obviously that, you know, they they don't want to die and they fight it. They, you know, they, they mm-hmm. you know, the, they. it's almost like they need permission for someone to say it's okay to let go. Right. Right. Okay. And I say, you know, as my mom say, more power to him. Like, if you want to fight death, you have cancer and want to wage a battle and be a warrior against cancer, do it. Um, but I think that there are opportunities to talk about dying that, that don't mean that you give up that warrior status against cancer. Another great show would be talking about what we're so afraid of, right? It's, you know, it's obviously it's people are... Uh, I think a lot of people are afraid of dying. But anyway, okay, well, we are out of town time, so I do want to thank you, Peg, for, for shedding light on this very important topic, and and um, I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Francesca. I think this was a great hour. I so appreciate having a conversation with you today. Okay, all right. Thanks so much. All right, we've got to wrap things up and say good night. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned as uh, as much as I did. I found it incredibly fascinating. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Make it a great week. Mm-hmm.